Let us turn together to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. And we'll read the opening verses. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know. My people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even unto the head there is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your land strangers devour it in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. We'll pause the reading and let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the privilege of reading your word. Help us to prize it. Help us to understand it, to take it to heart to profit from it, to live according to it, to understand your will, and to live to please and honor and serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Isaiah lived in a difficult time a time of national decline. The kingdom of Judah in which he lived and to whom he prophesied was rebellious against God. And there's some of that spelled out here in the verses that we read. Isaiah is God's voice to Judah to expose their sins to warn them of coming judgment, to call them to repentance. He also is God's voice to prophesy of things in the future that would be God's deliverance after his judgment upon them. They would go into captivity, and yet in that captivity, God would be faithful to them, and he would keep his covenant promise, and he would preserve a portion of the nation and bring them back once again to inhabit the land. Things were so desperate at the present 
in the times in which Isaiah himself lived, that they were already under some measure of judgment. Enemies had, at least in some part, come and uh, help themselves to some of the outskirts of the nation. Judah is described in verse 8 as a cottage in a vineyard and a lodge in a garden of cucumbers. Think of that. The nearest equivalent we would have of that today probably is something like a, a pup tent. That's about all that's left of the great nation of Judah. It's compared to just a small temporary dwelling that the gardener would throw together hurriedly just for the the maybe harvesting season. And that brings us to verse 9. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Well, we know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. They were utterly destroyed, totally destroyed. No one was left. Only Lot and his two daughters escaped. Everything else was completely destroyed in the fiery judgment from God upon those cities. And Isaiah says, that's what would have happened to Jerusalem and to Judah if God had not preserved a very small remnant. And we see something similar over in chapter 10, if you would turn there with me. We read in chapter 10, verse 20, It shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall be no more, or shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon the Lord. In other words, they won't lean upon their enemies for help. They'll lean upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed or the destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness. So judgment would come and it would be severe. But after that, glorious days would come. And, and these glorious days would come with the coming of Messiah and his kingdom, which would be inaugurated in his first coming and consummated in his second coming. That is just a very brief thumbnail sketch of Isaiah. And this is the message not only of Isaiah. In a way, it's the same message that virtually all of the prophets of the Old Testament, the, the, the writing prophets, these books from Isaiah on to Malachi, who prophesied at different times and, and places, but generally speaking, this is the message of all of them. God's Old Testament people have sinned, have wandered away from God. Judgment will come upon them, but after judgment, God will preserve and restore, and Messiah will come. And those that are preserved and faithful, are called a remnant, a remnant. And we see this principle of not the whole nation, but a portion of it. We would say a, a fraction, maybe a small fraction. In fact, here in chapter 1, verse 9, it's described as a very small remnant. 
This is God's purpose. This is with whom God was working in way of blessing and in way of preservation. Now, we use the word remnant today usually in the context of a, a fabric store. That's where I usually hear it. Uh, and the only other place is uh, uh, with regard to carpets. There's remnants of fabrics. You know, the, the bigger pieces have all been uh, or have been cut out of the whole bolt. And what's left is not enough to do anything big with. But uh, somebody might find some use for this little scrap. Same way with a carpet. You know, this, th- these little pieces that are not big enough to do a whole room or anything, someone might have some use for these remnants to make a, a rug or something like that out of. And so they're sold as remnants. In man's eyes, these are little thought of. Really not good for much of anything. At least nothing important. And there are several words in the Old Testament in Hebrew translated remnant or remnants. They all pretty much have this same Definition, that which is left, that which survives, the residue, uh, we might say the leftovers. Again, in English as well as in Hebrew, it is that which is small and unnoticed by man, or if it is noticed, it's despised. But the amazing thing is, As we read here in these verses before us, in God's estimation, the remnant is much set by. That is, God highly regards it. God has preserved it for himself. This is a principle that we see all through Holy Scripture. Even places where the term itself is not used, the principle is certainly found. It is God's good pleasure to choose and to save and to preserve a remnant this is something of a an underlying principle that we see through and through Holy Scripture. And I want us to focus on it here for a little while this afternoon. This has been God's method all along. We could go back to the early chapters of the book of Genesis and see how that as the population of the earth was beginning to grow and multiply, that God singled out the line of Seth. And they continued the faithful worship of the true and living God as others followed their own lusts and perhaps idolatries Seth's line was God's faithful remnant we come a little later in the book of Genesis to Noah Noah is in the the genealogy of Seth or he's a descendant of Seth. And it may well be that Noah in his generation was the only one even of Seth's line who was faithful to God. 
And it was only Noah and seven others of his family who were preserved through the flood. That was a very small remnant indeed. Then we see God singling out Abraham and separating him unto himself from all of the other people on the earth to be one that God would enter into a special covenant with. And his seed, Isaac and Jacob and so on. God dealt with them separately from all of the other people and peoples and nations of the earth. The focus of the Old Testament is to follow what became of Abraham and his descendants. That takes us all the way to the New Testament and the coming of Christ through the the nation that arose from Abraham. We see this principle at work in the days of Elijah. Up in Israel, in the northern part of uh, Palestine, after the, the dividing of the nation into north and south, Elijah in the north stands against most everyone up there, especially King Ahab and those who were in places of power and even many other prophets who were false prophets. Elijah stands like a small remnant in that part of the world. But as you recall, he learns that there are 7,000 faithful worshipers of the true and living God in Israel. And even though he wasn't alone and there were thousands of others, they were all still a remnant in the midst of a very hostile uh, kingdom. The prophet Jeremiah gives us these words from the Lord. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries whither I have driven them and will bring them again to their folds and they shall be fruitful and increase. The prophet Joel speaks of the same and his prophecy in chapter 2 is especially relevant to New Testament times. And the fact that he is quoted there uh, in Acts chapter 2 shows us that this very passage has reference to the times of Messiah. It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. The Lord would call out to himself a remnant. He would effectually draw to himself a remnant. Well, following just very briefly here the history of the nation of Israel, they did go into captivity. Seventy years. God then brought them back and one of the uh, leaders in that return was Ezra in Ezra chapter 9 we read and now for a little space grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in this place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. The number of the ones who actually made the journey to Jerusalem from areas uh, in the north and 
and East, Babylon, and all were a relatively small number. And Ezra calls them a remnant that escaped. We see this principle going on into the New Testament. One of the opening scenes in the New Testament is connected with the birth of Christ. We have these four older saints who were a faithful remnant in Jerusalem, who waited for the consolation of Israel. They were expecting and looking forward to the the fulfillment of the Messianic promises and, and the comfort that it would bring when he came. I'm talking, of course, about Zacharias and Elizabeth, as well as Simeon and Anna. We follow the Lord in his public ministry. And we find multitudes following him for a variety of reasons at one point. We find at the end 11 faithful disciples. One of the 12 betrayed him. Out of all of the multitudes that had followed him and thousands at some points, we find in Jerusalem 120 gathered together in Acts chapter 1. Relative to the whole population of Jerusalem, that was a small number, a small remnant. But that was God's purpose, and that was how God operated. It's how he's always operated. Now, I'll ask you to look with me at the book of Romans, at a couple of passages here that use this term. In Romans chapter 9, the words from Isaiah 1 are quoted with reference to God's whole purpose of grace, not just uh, nationally with Israel or Judah, but with all of God's elect and his whole purpose of redemption. Here in Romans 9, we read, well, we really ought to get some context here. Verse 24, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. These are those to whom God has made known the riches of his glory. As he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. And then notice verse 27. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, and this is from chapter 1 of Isaiah, though the... I'm sorry, this is the part from chapter 10 that we read. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. It won't be all of the grains of sand. It will be a few of them. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, and this takes us back to chapter 1, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been like unto Gomorrah. These passages from Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 10 are quoted here in the New Testament with reference to God's whole purpose of grace and election of Jews and Gentiles unto salvation. 
It was never God's purpose to save the whole world, but to save a part, to save a remnant, to preserve a remnant. Again, in Romans chapter 11, let's begin reading at verse 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? Now, Paul is addressing here Jewish people in particular. Has God cast them away? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Wot ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, They have killed thy prophets, and digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then at this present time also, just as it was in the days of Elijah, so it is now. There is a remnant according to the election of grace. And this remnant is speaking specifically of Jewish people who had come to faith in Christ, like Paul himself. The remnant principle is throughout the word of God. And it is throughout Events in this world since the first century. We might say, in a way, the story of church history is God's preserving a remnant faithful to himself. We know that there were errors and apostasies that entered in early on, some of them, before the New Testament was completed. Paul warns the elders from Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. He says, you're going to be attacked from without as well as from within. And he's warning them and encouraging them to be careful and to be on guard and to be faithful as a remnant unto the Lord. The Apostle John makes this statement, and we might think of it in a way as sort of a lament. Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest, that they were not all of us. John is concerned to be a voice from God to preserve a faithful remnant to the Lord. And so it is ever since then. In every age, God has kept a remnant of faithful people. And all historians agree on this, though they don't always agree on exactly uh, who the remnant was, But certainly the Lord has preserved a faithful remnant for himself. Thank God for seasons of revival. When the number of the remnant has increased and the Lord has saved many in a relatively short period of time. But even then, even in the best of revivals, from the data that we know anything about, it has still been a remnant, still been a minority who were faithful to the Lord. 
And in times when there's not revival, or in the periods between revival, we might think of the, the dark valleys between these mountain peaks of revival, there have been some very low periods and decline. But God has always kept a remnant and preserved a remnant. We think of Mr. Spurgeon, uh, for example. The early years especially of his ministry were just like the windows of heaven opened up and the blessings of God poured out more than they could keep up with, more than they could handle. And that continued on for really many years. But the end of Mr. Spurgeon's life, the last few years, he lived to be 57, so in in his 50s, things changed quite dramatically. Liberal theology that originated in Germany well, it originated in hell, but it came through Germany, came over to the British Isles. And many of Spurgeon's fellow pastors fell for it and began preaching it. It was a denial of the most basic elements of the gospel, but it came in subtly and some people didn't recognize it for what it was and thought that it was an improvement and would lead to better things and so on. Spurgeon wasn't fooled for a minute. He saw it for what it was. He spoke against it. He wrote against it. He preached against it. He was actually cast out of this group that he belonged to called the Baptist Union because liberalism had virtually taken over that union or that association, we might call it. And the last years of Spurgeon's life were very different from the beginning as far as his ministry was concerned. He had far fewer friends. His influence diminished. He said there during this time, and it's called the downgrade time, during this, and that was his term. That was the title he gave it. We're living in the midst of a downgrade, and that word stuck. He ended up having as his friends and supporters, his own church, pretty much exclusively. And though he had had many friends and helped many churches around London in earlier years, none of them wanted anything to do with him, or most of them didn't want anything to do with him now. And at this period of his life, We read things like this. Here's a sermon. And I I failed to write down the date of this, but it is after this downgrade movement has, has wrought its evil for a number of years. And uh, this is towards the end of the last few years of his life. He's preaching on the text, Behold the Lamb of God. John says, Behold the Lamb of God. And he does so for the sake of those around him. We do not desire others to believe with us because we need them to keep us in countenance. That is, he says, John was preaching, Behold the Lamb of God for the good of his hearers. It wasn't because he was lonely and, uh, and needed friends. And Spurgeon says, it's the same with us. We do not desire others to believe with us because we need them to keep us happy. In other words, John was not a man cut out of brown paper in the same shape as thousands of others, but he was an original, self-contained individual. Spurgeon is 
seeing himself in that way during this season of his life. He goes on. John knew how to see the Lamb of God for himself, whether other people did or did not see him. When I preach to you the doctrine of the vicarious sacrifice, it is not because I am unable to believe this truth alone. Long ago I ceased to count heads. Truth is usually in the minority in this evil world. I have faith in the Lord Jesus for myself. A faith burned into me as with a hot iron. I thank God what I believe I shall believe even if I believe it alone. If I'm the last man to glory in the substitution of the Lord Jesus, I shall count myself honored to bear his cross alone. Well, you get the picture there. Mr. Spurgeon felt very lonely at that stage of his life compared to how things had been earlier. Invitations to preach didn't come so often. His name was the object of mudslinging in newspapers and so on. He was viewed as this man out of his out of time times have changed and Spurgeon hasn't changed with the times that was the the opinion of the general public concerning him Spurgeon says it doesn't bother me a bit I'm not counting numbers he says I expect to be in a minority holding to the truth in the midst of a of an evil world and beloved this remnant principle saw Spurgeon through and not much has changed since then our situation today is almost the same and maybe in some ways it might be worse as we look at things internationally and nationally and even locally what is God doing well he's preserving a remnant for himself it's what he's always done the majority is against God and we could even say the majority of professing Christians I mean, if we want to talk about what is mainstream Christianity, then we're talking, if we're just counting numbers, we're talking about Roman Catholicism. That's where the numbers are. Or if we talk about, outside of Romanism, those that would be called evangelicals, and that term has so changed in definition, it's hard to even know what it means anymore but certainly the mainstream of evangelicalism has gone woke among other things it's really a misnomer to call it woke they've gone to sleep on their watch and God continues to preserve a remnant for himself. And as others deny the truth and embrace perversion and the like, God's remnant stands out more than ever in times like these. God's remnant is easily identified And being easily identified is easily targeted for opposition, ridicule, and even persecution. Now let me just mention a few things that we should learn from all of this. And I'll I'll be brief here. We should expect... If we are faithful to God, we should expect to be a minority. 
a remnant. Jesus spoke of many who go through the wide gate and few who pass through the narrow gate. Many who walk the wide path, few who walk the narrow way. And yes, many who enter into destruction and few who enter into eternal life. On the other hand, if you were to gather together all of the remnant from every generation, which is what heaven will be, there will be many. Even though we're few age by age, generation by generation, Christ came to give his life a ransom for many. He's the firstborn among many brethren. He is bringing many sons into glory. And we'll not get into the discussion about whether there will be more people in heaven than in hell. Mr. Spurgeon, for one, believed that there would be. But as we look at each generation having a faithful remnant, it, uh, the mathematics is, uh, is challenging there. Well, I'll go ahead and tell you. Mr. Spurgeon's view was that all those who die in infancy would be redeemed by Christ and that that would swell the numbers of heaven beyond the numbers in hell. But that's just his opinion. Now, I know we all like to be part of something big, And we should understand that God's cause is big. But as it comes down to us on a personal and local level, we must expect to be a remnant. Smallness is the lot of God's remnant in any generation. We do sense ourselves as like Lot in Sodom. And Sodom is so big and powerful, and our voice is so small. And may God help us to do better than Lot in standing for the truth. But we're living in Sodom, and that shouldn't surprise us. God preserves a remnant even in our modern Sodom. This has always been his way. You know, I might just give you a little personal story here. I remember uh, in my days as a student coming to embrace, see, and love the doctrines of grace sovereignty of God, what some call Calvinism. And it was such an encouraging time. At the same time, it was difficult because I only knew a couple of Calvinistic churches And they were very small. And the movement that I was walking away from had in those years the largest churches in the country, the highest Sunday school attendance in the country. They had the strength of numbers for whatever that's worth. There was a sense of identity and belonging there. But knowing that what I had come to believe would be totally unwelcome in those circles, I had to turn my back and walk away. And I was walking into this little remnant And I had no idea where it would lead. 
and what it would consist of. I remember a period of time feeling like a man without a country. And it was such a blessing to me to be able to find Christian fellowship and common belief and experience in some little small assemblies. And though I felt like someone who had stepped off of a big ocean liner into a little uh, inflatable raft and was afloat on the sea, nevertheless, I was so thankful and happy to identify with the few despised what I would consider remnant of God's people. I was happy and thankful, and I still am. Let us then rejoice to be a part of God's remnant today. Let us be thankful for the privilege to be on God's side in the struggle for truth. Let us thank God for a few names even in Sardis. Or a few names even in Broken Arrow. Another thing to learn is only God knows who all are in his remnant. Let us not imagine that we can count them all. Elijah thought he was the only one. He found out there's thousands more. God knows who his remnant is. We might inflate the number or deflate the number in error either way. God knows, and we leave that to him. Let us learn, moreover, never to fear for God's cause. He has always worked through a remnant and always preserved a remnant. Sometimes, as in Isaiah's day, a very small remnant. And that should never discourage us. Smallness should never lead us to despair. Jesus himself said to the disciples, Fear not, little flock. Don't be afraid, you few people. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so we must not be discouraged, but we should be concerned. Concerned enough to pray earnestly for the cause of God and truth. And the preservation and continuation of God's remnant in our generation will be an answer to prayer. It will come as an answer to many prayers and many labors and sacrifices and maybe even martyrdom. But let's consider it a great privilege to be in God's remnant and realize it comes with a great responsibility. Let us pray and labor for the remnant and for the growth of the remnant and for the reviving of the remnant. Very quickly, let us be faithful regardless of the cost. We're here on the eve of a new year. And everyone who's paying any attention to events in the world around us seems to be holding their breath and forecasting bad things. They don't even know what, but they know it's bad. And they may be right. This coming year may hold great trouble for God's remnant. But it may at the same time hold great blessing. And as things crumble worldwide and society-wide around us, we may have occasions to stand like never before and to be useful servants more than we ever have. Oh, what a blessing that would be. So let us be faithful. Let us resist the pressure to uh, 
compromise. Let us not abandon the remnant. Let us be faithful and take heart and persevere. Let us be faithful to the Lord by being faithful to his remnant. And the last thing I'll say is this. We might ask, well, why does God do it like this? You know, why why doesn't God's cause swell the numbers and be a majority? I would suggest this. The story of Gideon in the book of Judges probably gives us the answer. It is so that man will not steal the credit that belongs to God alone. When God's remnant is small and few, he gets all the glory. There's no way anybody can take credit for it. The Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. And I forget who it was who commented on this. Maybe Matthew Henry. He said, Sometimes in Scripture we read of too many, but never too few with God. Gideon had too many. God worked through a very small remnant and gave a great victory. God does it this way so that he alone will get all of the credit and all of the glory. Praise be to him. What happens in when numbers are big? Well, egos become big. People taking the credit for it becomes big. And God is determined that it will be obvious to everyone that he has done it all. And so to God alone be the glory for the great things that he has done, the great things that he shall do. Let us be faithful in 2024. God help us.